Welcome, welcome to Women in the Word Spring Break Week. I, um, I'm not going to ask you if you're happier to be here rather than in Grand Cayman or somewhere else, but I am happy to be here with all of you. I, I love Women in the Word, and I love just being with like-minded women. There's something about it that really encourages my spirit every single week. So thank you for being here. I'm Shelley Davis, one of the Women in the Word teachers, and I'm happy to spring break with all of you. Um, My husband is a veterinarian, so over the years, we've had a variety of animals, and they've been a huge part of our lives. And we got our very first dog, a little black furry mutt, just right after we got married. We called her our first child, um, actually. And she slept loyally beside our bed every single night. But it was when our babies began to arrive that I really began to recognize the depth of her loyalty to me. When I brought our first baby home from the hospital, that little dog made every single step I made every night, all night, from the first baby to the last. Whenever the baby would cry during the night and I'd stumble into the nursery trying to get the diaper changed and do the nursing, sitting in my rocker, she was right there with me every single time. And she only went back to bed when I went back to bed. And she did the exact same thing with all three of our babies. In fact, no one was more thrilled when I had our last baby than that little dog. She was tried to tell me we should be done here. But she taught me some great lessons in loyalty. I think animals can always do that for us. She was committed, reliable, dependable, always the warm spot at my feet every single night. She was a positive picture of the definition of a loyal of loyalty, allegiance, dedication, commitment. Now we're going to continue our story with David and Absalom again this week in chapter 15. And we're going to get to see here in this chapter who's loyal and who's not. Who's dedicated, who's committed, and who's not. And who can be counted on when the chips are down. So open your Bibles again with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15, and we're going to learn some great lessons in loyalty together. Look at verse 1 with me. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel 
who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So our chapter here in verse 1 begins with those words, after this. And that really takes us back to David and Absalom, what we talked about last week with Kristen, um, following Amnon's murder. And Kristen shared with us last week that David did not do a good job, did he, reconciling with Absalom. Um, David is a wise king, but his personal relationships with his family are a disaster. And this chapter is actually a reflection of the mess and disaster in David's personal relationship. Absalom here has allowed his heart to become bitter because of the lengthy time that it took David to pursue reconciliation with him. His bitterness is now hatching a plan that is going to improve Absalom's station in life and it's going to put his father in his place. And he begins that plan right here at the city gate in Jerusalem, doesn't he? You know, we saw Absalom spend two years planning Amnon's murder, but he's even more patient this time. He gathers horses and men, even a chariot, things that David never really did, and he does that to make himself look royal and powerful, arriving at the city gate every day in a chariot. He invests countless hours greeting people from all over Israel at the gate, and he makes it personal with everyone, doesn't he? Um, He asks them questions. He affirms them. He wants to know where they're from and what their problems are. He, He even, it says here, reaches out doesn't just shake their hand like we see the royals today, William and Kate, do down the fence line. Oh, no. He hugs them. He kisses them. That's totally out of character for royalty, even in Absalom's day. He also cleverly implies that David is indifferent to their problems and possibly incompetent. And he creates discontent among the people of Israel alienating them from David as he creates political capital for himself with his personal care and concern. He's also very clever here because he doesn't openly say he should be king. That would be treason. But he does imply that it would be a really great thing if he were the one to issue rulings and decrees for all of the people, if he were in charge as their judge. And he carries out the kingly responsibility, what David has the responsibility to do, of hearing the disputes of the people without declaring himself the king, actually. The Absalom that presents himself at the gate here is empathetic. He's wise. He's humble. He's caring. He's the perfect picture of a king while pointing out the absence of Israel's true king. Now, we don't actually know what David is doing while Absalom is out there being so personal, courting the people of Israel. But we also know that David is the ruling sovereign, and he has responsibilities. He is, uh, during this period of time, gathering all of the materials that are going to be necessary to build the Lord's temple uh, when Solomon eventually becomes king. He's actually building his own royal palace at that time. 
And he is in charge of continuing to protect Israel against their enemies. He's a busy guy. He doesn't just have time to campaign, as Absalom does. Um, An Absalom who is a patient and ambitious schemer takes full advantage of David's distractions. Okay, read some more with me. Look at verse 7. And at the end of four years, and let me point out here that the NIV and the ESV says four years. If you have another translation that says 40 years, that is a scribal error. It could not possibly have been 40 years that Absalom was at the gate. It is four years. Um, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow for which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messages throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifice, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city in Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So we actually see history repeat itself here with Absalom, Uh, as he coerces David with a story. Remember when um, he told David that he wanted his brothers to come with him for the sheep shearing? Um, That wasn't really a sheep shearing celebration, wasn't it? It was a murder party because he went on to kill Amnon then. This time he tells David, oh, I've made a vow while I was in exile with my grandfather in Geshur, um, he claims that he vowed to worship the Lord if the Lord actually allowed him to return to Jerusalem, which, of course, the Lord does. Now, the reason this sounds fishy here with Absalom is he's been back in Jerusalem for four years. He's had more than enough time to go fulfill this vow. Um, that's a long time to ignore a vow that you have made to worship the Lord in response to his favor, if this was in fact sincere. In fact, the law even speaks to fulfilling vows in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 23 on your verse sheet. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But we see here that David doesn't actually question him or call him on the four years that he's been waiting to fulfill this vow. And he grants his request to go to Hebron. And Hebron is actually a well-thought-out destination for this clever usurper, because Hebron is where David was first anointed king. It's been considered the uh, seat of the kingship in the past. So it's natural that Absalom might go back there. It's also the city of Absalom's birth. So he probably has a fair amount of friends and supporters already in Hebron. He would be safe there. 
It's also possible that there is resentment of David and Hebron because when David was finally proclaimed king over all of Israel, he moved the capital from Hebron, where it had been, to Jerusalem. And so the people of Hebron may still be angry about that. Along with uh, heading to Hebron, Absalom sends out secret messages throughout Israel announcing his coup and preparing people to join him. When he says um, for them to shout, Absalom is king in Hebron, that's really a call to arms. As that's shouted out among each tribe and each village, what he's saying to the people is, now is the time. Pick up your arms and follow me. I am making my move to take over the kingship. He also does a very calculated thing here when he invites these 200 men from Jerusalem to join him as he celebrates his vow. These are leaders of some sort in David's administration. They had positions of responsibility in David's administration. Kingship. So having these men with uh, Absalom, with him in Hebron, gives him the appearance of having their support. Now, they didn't know that Absalom was planning a coup when they accepted and joined him. Um, but when they get to Hebron and learn what is happening, um, two things happened here. Either They were detained by Absalom. Once they're there, they're essentially his captives, and he won't let them return to Jerusalem when they discover the coup. Or when Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor and advisor, joins Absalom, that may have swayed them to switch their allegiance as well. But either way, they're still 20 miles south of Jerusalem and David's capital, So even if these 200 men wanted to support David or had some questions they wanted to ask David, um, they're unable to do it because they are now in Hebron. Very clever of Absalom. We also uh, don't exactly know why Ahithophel, David's advisor, has agreed to join Absalom. But what we do know is Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And it's probably more than likely that Ahithophel still holds a grudge against David about uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba, um, uh, really almost ruining her life, killing her husband. That could be Ahithophel's motive for his lack of loyalty to David. And we learn that Absalom's support just continues to grow among the people here. His undermining of David the last four years has completely paid off. Israel is no longer loyal to David, thanks to the scheming of Absalom. But as the leadership and the people turn their hearts and their loyalty away from David to Absalom, you know what they're really doing here? They're abdicating their loyalty to the Lord, to God and his plans for them, because it is David who is God's chosen king, not Absalom. They don't get a vote when God changes, when God chooses his king. They've quickly forgotten all the things that they've loved about David, the reasons 
um, that they've supported him all these years, the victories over Israel's enemies. They've forgotten the covenant that Israel's elders made with David when they made him king over all Israel. They've forgotten that the favor that they experience uh, as God's people has been given to them because of God's covenant, the Davidic covenant we looked at in chapter 7 uh, with David. Look at 2 Samuel 5, 1 and 2 on your verse sheet. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bond in flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. David is clearly God's choice. And they knew that when they made him king of Israel. As Israel has traded their loyalty to David for Absalom with his handsome good looks and his great social people skills, his political ambitions, it really is reminiscent of Saul. Kristen talked about that last week because Saul was a handsome guy as well. Um, Look at what the Lord says to Samuel as he anoints David king, taking his favor from Saul. Look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look upon his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Um, For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The people of Israel are actually perfectly described here. Um, Men looking only at the outward appearance, at the popularity, at the people skills, the charisma. So the question we have to ask ourselves today as we think about the people of Israel is what shapes our loyalties? What are we committed to? Who has our allegiance and why have we given it to them? You know, we all have loyalties, don't we? Football season proves that, maybe even March Madness. I have a house full of Aggies who all bleed maroon, completely bleed maroon. And you know, Aggies love to win, but that's not what they base their allegiance on. If you are an Aggie or know an Aggie, you will say amen to that. I was at um, A&M's last home game Thanksgiving weekend with my kids and grandkids, and it was freezing cold and raining, and I thought we are going to be the only people in Kyle Field. No. When we got there, there were 102,000 Aggies in Kyle Field Thanksgiving weekend in the rain and the cold. There was not an empty seat. These Aggies are loyal. But outside of football, it's wise for us to examine our loyalties, I believe, through the lens of God's Word. David was God's chosen king, and he was always an example of loyalty to Israel. He was always loyal to Saul, wasn't he? Even when Saul was trying to kill him. And why was he loyal to Saul? He was loyal to Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. David only saw Saul through the lens of God's word. And just like David, a biblical worldview needs to shape our loyalties today as well. 
Absalom lost his loyalty to his father and his king because he was angry. He was bitter. He had ambition. Israel switched their loyalties to Absalom because of his looks, his charisma, his popularity. I think it was trendy, using today's word for Absalom. So we have to examine our loyalties, big and small, through the lens of God's word. We have to follow David's example, not Absalom. And we have to resist giving our loyalties to the wrong cause or the wrong people because it's trendy, because of peer pressure, because we don't stop and look through the lens of God's word. Our loyalties in our very divided and complicated world must be given and shaped by God's truth alone. Look at Psalm 119 with me. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's truth has to light the path of our loyalties and protect us from giving our loyalties to the wrong people for the wrong reasons. Okay, we have more story here. Look at verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So David only learns of Absalom's coup when this messenger arrives in Jerusalem. And when his messenger here says, the men of Israel, what he probably is referring to is David's military. His entire army has joined Absalom. Um, So David realizes that this situation is serious. It's not something to scoff at. He needs to take some pretty quick action here to protect himself, his family, and the city of Jerusalem. And although David has faced many hard circumstances throughout his life, we studied those together, this is a crisis that threatens not just his life and his family, it also threatens his calling to be king. God has called David to be king, and now that calling is threatened. Because Absalom had taken 200 of David's advisors with him to Hebron, there aren't enough resources around him now in the government in Jerusalem for him to stand his ground and mount a defense. Um, And for what may be the very first time in David's military career, he has to order his household, his guard, his servants to flee before an enemy. But the great thing we do see here, even as discouraging as it is for David to learn of this coup by his own son, the great thing we do see in this part of David's story is the loyalty of his servants and his friends. Because his servants here proclaim what is really the essence of loyalty when they say, we are with you. We are ready to stand by you and do whatever you ask of us. 
And their allegiance never wavers. Um, They follow him out of Jerusalem, even though their choice may very well cost them their lives. And even though David is taken by surprise by Absalom's coup, he's still a pretty talented military leader. He can think on his feet. And he has two priorities here that he carries out, preserve the lives of his people, his servants, his family, even his guard, and maintain a peaceful presence in the city of David in Jerusalem. In leaving only the women behind, which we are in a couple of verses here we actually didn't read, he leaves behind 10 of his concubines in the royal residence. What that does is it signals um, to Absalom that he doesn't have a desire for any fighting to actually take place in Jerusalem. He doesn't leave soldiers or his guard behind. He only leaves his women. And he, it also signals David plans to return. He's not simply abandoning the, this part of his family. He's coming back for them. They're staying in his royal palace, and they are his people. Jerusalem is the city of David, not the city of Absalom. David will return. Keep reading with me. Look at verse 19. And then the king said to Itai the Gittite, um, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your home, and you came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us since I go? I know not where. Go back. Take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ete answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, whatever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will be your servant. And David said to Ete, Go then, pass on. So Ete the Gittite passed on with all of his men and all the little ones who were with him. So Itai the Gittite is the leader of the Philistine military forces that served with David. If you remember, David lived in Philistine, Philistia uh, with the Philistines prior to uh, Saul's death, and a lot of these men um, got to know David, became loyal to him, and when he left and returned to Israel, they went with him. Now David does question here the loyalty of Itai and his Philistine troops because they are foreigners and their allegiance to him could possibly change during a battle. When David was living with the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 29, I think it is, they questioned his loyalty and refused to let David go out with him because he might change his loyalties during a battle. But even when David acknowledges that hey, bud, I don't have any idea where I'm going here or what is going to happen or how this is going to end up. Ite responds with this very moving profession of loyalty uh, to David that is actually reminiscent of Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. When Naomi tried to send Ruth back to her home country because she was also a foreigner, um, Here was Ruth's response. Look at Ruth 1.16 on your verse sheet. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And Ite's response here to David is equally moving. He is standing with David, whether it's in life or in death. And we're going to see later in 2 Samuel in a couple of weeks that David recognizes and responds to Ite's loyalty here by making him a commander, not just of the Philistine troops, but of a third of David's entire army. But Ite is not David's only loyal friend during this difficult moment. David has another loyal friend. Drop your eyes down with me to verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in the past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, the two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz and Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Um, We're going to go back and read about David's journey up the Mount of Olives in just a couple of minutes. But as he actually reaches the summit of the Mount of Olives, part of his entourage who had been with him up that journey, he discovers his friend Hushai has been part of that. And Hushai is obviously grieving here what he's heard about Absalom overthrowing David. He's displaying sympathy for David's plight here with his torn robe and dirt on his head. And David, who has just learned, we'll read in a few minutes, that Ahithophel, who he considered a trusted counselor and friend, has given his uh, loyalty to Absalom. David, when he sees Hushai, calls upon his friend to make a huge sacrifice put himself in jeopardy. He asked Hushai, hey, don't go with us. Go back to Jerusalem. Attach yourself to Absalom and appear as his advisor. Now, this is war, and David is doing whatever he can um, as a warrior, as a commander here. He's not just being um, deceptive. He wants Hushai to be a mole inside Absalom's palace, relaying information to David and undermining Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom. Because of Hushai's loyal allegiance to David, he accepts David's plan, even though it may possibly um, cause his execution if he's discovered in Absalom's palace. So he returns to Jerusalem just as Absalom is coming into Jerusalem. He is the picture of loyalty as he willingly stands by David, even in the face 
of what could be the sacrifice of his whole life. And, you know, as I read this chapter and thought about David's loyal friends and the sacrifices they made, I was actually reminded of people that I know that I've seen make incredible sacrifices in their lives because of their loyalty. And it reminded me of one of my daughter-in-laws, actually, Leah. Now, I have three amazing daughter-in-laws, and I could talk about all of them for the rest of our time together. But Leah is a military wife, and my son is an Air Force pilot who has literally moved her all over the world in their 13 years of marriage. In those 13 years, they've already lived nine years um, outside of the United States. Um, And her loyalty to him, her loyalty to her marriage vows made before God is inspiring. Although she's a pretty humble gal and she would be totally embarrassed if she heard me say this about her today. So don't tell her. If you know her, don't tell her. Um, But I just have to share with you some of the examples of her sacrifice because of her loyalty to her marriage vows. Um, She did her very first pregnancy. She was pretty young. She was alone in a foreign country, and my son was deployed fighting in Afghanistan. She did the whole pregnancy by herself while he was in Afghanistan. When both of her uh, sweet babies were born, they were actually on temporary duty, which means, if you have a military background, she was living in a hotel-like setting. So when those babies were born, She didn't have a decorated nursery to bring her sweet little guys home to. She had a pack and play in a closet. And so both times, that's how she came home to the hospital. Um, She's flown all over the world alone with these babies and toddlers in tow. She's been without my son in several major typhoons in Japan and surgeries when they lived in England. And what brought her to my mind is I talked to her on Sunday They're in Japan again. It was her birthday, which is the reason I tried to get a hold of her. And, of course, my son has been gone for three weeks, and she's not sure exactly uh, what he's doing or where he is. I think she does know when he'll be home. But her concern, which mine would have been, I'll admit, is, okay, I did another birthday as a single mom without, you know, any family celebration. No. Her concern was for him and his safety, and she had had a great birthday with her little boys. Just like David's people that we see here that follow him out of Jerusalem knowing their lives are in danger, um, she's an example of the truth that we all have to remember. Loyalty demands sacrifice. Loyalty demands sacrifice. But David's friends and advisors are not the only ones who are loyal We see David's loyalty here to the Lord. Look back up at verse 24 with me. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what he what seems good to 
him. So if you remember, it was David who actually brought the ark in the first place to Jerusalem to dwell in the tabernacle he erected there. But now as he flees Jerusalem, his priests um, decide to bring the ark along with David, thinking um, that it would be a symbol of God's favor and blessing on David as he flees Absalom. Um, But David's response here reminds us even though we've all seen David's shortcomings and we've lamented over his mistakes here as we've read his story, he knows the Lord. He truly knows the Lord. And he's fully committed to him, even in this hard time. And he's not going to fall into the mistake of using the ark of God superstitiously as a good luck charm or a talisman. Um, or even a source of pride. I'm the king and I have the ark. Israel had actually made that mistake in the past, bringing the ark into the battle with them against the Philistines simply as a good luck charm, and it didn't turn out very well. Look at 1 Samuel 4.3 on your verse sheet. And the people came to the camp. The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And sadly, this doesn't turn out well for Israel. They bring the Ark, they misappropriate it and use it as a good luck charm, and it actually, when they're defeated, falls into the hands of the Philistines. Fortunately, David does not make Israel's mistake here of using it for his own purposes. He sends his priests and the ark back to Jerusalem where the ark belonged, and he makes an amazing statement of loyalty and submission here to his God. David believes his fate is truly in God's hands. He is God's anointed king, and as long as God decrees it to be. He will see the ark again if it's God's plan, not if it's his plan or his chief priest's plan. And he willingly submits his future, whether he's king or not, whether he lives or not, he submits his future to his God. When he's faced with leaving his kingdom and his life, David stands firmly and loyally with God, just like our future king from the line of David does. Look at Mark 14, 36. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. David's loyalty as he walks up the Mount of Olives, actually going towards the Garden of Gethsemane, it actually foreshadows the loyalty of our Lord Jesus to God's plan and God's will in his life as Jesus plays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like Jesus, who shows his distress in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is betrayed by his people, David weeps at the betrayal of his people as well. Look at verse 30 with me. 
But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So what we see here with David is he is attired for mourning here, barefoot and weeping in David's culture, walking barefoot with his head covered, was a symbol of his very shameful exile from his kingship and from Jerusalem. And it was on this journey to seek the Lord's face on the top of the Mount of Olives that he was actually originally told of Ahithophel's defection to Absalom. And his response is prayer. It's not angry. He doesn't shout or throw things. He goes straight to the God that gave him the kingdom in the first place. You know, if you read the Psalms over and over again, David writes of his deep and real relationship with the Lord his God. And there are three Psalms that David actually, they believe, were written during this time he was fleeing from Absalom, Psalm 3 and 4 and 63. And in those three Psalms, we see David's confidence in the Lord. We don't see that he is angry or mad. He stays loyal to the Lord. No matter how crafty Absalom is, no matter how he's wooed Israel to follow him, David doesn't take that same path. He sticks with his God. Look at Psalm 4, verses 2 and 3. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And Psalm 63, David says this, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David is steadfast, even in this hard time, um, in his loyalty for the Lord. Now, as sad as it has been to see how God's people are deceived by Absalom and his scheme to undermine his uh, father, it was so encouraging to me, as I studied this over the past few weeks, to see the hearts of those people who did remain loyal to David when it might have been easier to jump ship, to go with the trendy or the popular, to follow peer pressure. David's loyal followers here are an example for us today as we choose our loyalties in this crazy, fallen world, post-Christian culture not only do we have to examine our loyalties through the lens of God's word, as we've already talked about, we also have to be prepared to make the sacrifices that we're called to make when we're asked to remain loyal to God's people and to God's truth. I read this week of a young man who attended a Catholic high school, and he used scripture, he used God's very word 
to support his view of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. And as a result of him standing and being loyal to the truth of God's word, he's being kicked out of his high school. He can't return. His choice was God's word or the popular um, gender inclusivity that's going around. He sacrificed because he stood on God's word. Almost every day, I know you do too, I read a story just like that. I hear about someone's loyalty to God and his truth, and it's ridiculed and challenged, even called evil. Our challenge, and we have to be prepared for it, ladies, because if you haven't already faced it, you're going to. Our challenge is be prepared for the sacrifices our loyalty to God may demand in the future. Don't let it take you by surprise. Loyalty demands sacrifice. Now, even though David was taken by surprise by Absalom's lack of loyalty, he went ahead and made an outstanding choice to remain steadfastly loyal to God, even when life was so hard, so difficult, so challenging. Our calling today is the same. Horatio Spafford wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul after losing all four of his daughters in a tragic accident in 1873. Only his wife survived that tragic accident. And he wrote the words, I'm sure you're familiar with them, Whatever my lot, thou hast tossed me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. He wrote those words, on his journey to reunite with his wife after the accident. And when he was interviewed um, about this tragedy, losing his, all of his children, um, he said, I never felt more like trusting God than I do now. David and Horatio Spafford both chose loyalty to God in life's worst moments. Our choice is the same. No matter how hard life is or the surprises that come our way, um, stay committed, stay dedicated, stand close to your faithful God. None of us will regret that, will we? Pray with me. Father, you are so good and gracious to us. And Lord, I pray that we would um, all be guided by your word that it would light the path as we choose our loyalties. I pray that we would have the courage to um, sacrifice uh, for loyalty to you and your word. I pray that you would give us the opportunity to stand firm in our allegiance to you on our hardest day. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.